Hello, Worcester in the world. This is your host, Joshua Croak, and this is Public Hearing, our podcast and radio show about cities, communities, and designing equitable and just futures. Today, we're talking with Al Green. Al is the ministry director of the LGBT Asylum Task Force at Hadwin Park Congregational Church. In this role, he's spent the past four years working with LGBTQ asylum seekers as they try to navigate the complexities of the asylum process in the U.S. Al partners with local and national entities to remove additional barriers to housing, employment, healthcare, and legal support that LGBTQ asylum seekers face. He is also an avid swimmer and a lover of all things food, as am I. Not a swimmer, lover of food. This is the Public Hearing Podcast and Radio Show. Public Hearing is available wherever you listen to podcasts and on WICN 90.5 FM on Wednesdays at 6 p.m., Worcester's only NPR affiliate station. Al, thank you so much for coming on the show. We always kick off the show asking our guests to share some background about themselves, any affiliations or experiences you want to bring into this space, as well as any part of your social location, um, things that describe parts of one's, one's identity that has been determined to be important by society in some way, which may include gender identity, race and ethnicity, geography, social class, and more. Please share whatever you'd like to bring into this space, and thank you for joining me on Public Hearing today. Thank you so much, Josh. It, it certainly is a, a pleasure to be here with you today. Um, so yeah, so I mean, you, you pretty much covered the majority of, of who it is that I that I am. Um, I'm a gay Sam seeker from Jamaica. I've been a resident of Worcester since 2008 when I came to go to undergrad at WPI. Graduated with a degree in civil engineering. Worked there for a few few years, and then I made the transition into uh, my current role as the ministry director of the LGBTSM task force. Um, I also co-own Queer the Scene, which is a, a local agency that is trying to bring greater voice and create more space for uh, queer people of color um, in the city of Worcester. Uh, so I, I do that with a few of my friends and, uh, um, and love it, right? Just love creating spaces where people can feel to be their authentic selves. And uh, um, it's been a, a love and hate relationship with the, the city of Worcester. Um, I've seen a lot of changes over the, the past, what is it now, 13 years that I've been here. Um, some are good, some not so good, um, some are bad. <laughs> and uh, um, certainly I'd love to, to delve into all of that with you this, today. Yeah, I'm looking forward to to chatting. And so we're both WPI alum, um, which is which is cool. I don't know if I've had other WPI folks on the show yet um, this season, but um, great to have a, a fellow alum doing awesome work in in the city. And um, I appreciate you being here. And it's also Pride Month in June, and we're celebrating queer voices in the city. Uh, this show is always pretty queer. I host it, and we always have. Uh, regular guests who are in the LGBTQ plus community, but we're adding additional light to those voices this month in June. Um, so you mentioned that you yourself are an asylum seeker. So there's a lot of similarities or, or a lot of shared experience that you bring into the work that you now do with folks who are, who are coming into, um, into the U.S., into Worcester. Could you share a little bit for our listeners who may not be super familiar about like the asylum process, uh, what people need to know about seeking asylum in the U.S. And, and here in our city of Worcester? 
it is complex, right? I mean, it, it's more than just the sound bites that you might hear on CNN or MSNBC or, or Fox or whatever news source you, you listen and watch. Um, it involves a lot of waiting. Um, yes, there are certain things that are standardized, but two people can start the process at the same time and have vastly different um, outcomes, right? Uh, and it, it's, it almost seems random how it is that things turn out for folks. Um, it is a system in which most oftentimes folks have to wait up to two years or more um, before they can actually legally work to support themselves. And so what a lot of people don't realize is that that the Assam process is such a lengthy one. It's not just that people are coming here and able to just work and <laughs> to take your jobs or whatever it is that you might think, right? It is a process in which um, people are actually being a persecution in their home countries, right? Aren't safe to be there. Um, and then, and in the case where the folks that we're supporting happen to be LGBTQ, um, it's not safe in 70 or so countries uh, throughout the world where they're coming from. They get here, um, oftentimes aren't aware of the the Assam process and, and the, the, the different steps in it. And then they get here and have to navigate that whole system by themselves. Um, let's say that they do, they are native English speakers, right? Even then it's still a difficult process to, to navigate for folks. And then they have to, like I said, wait to, for up to two years or more after getting here before they can actually work to support themselves. These are all people who don't want to be reliant on the handouts of, of, of strangers, right? I mean, they want to, to be constructive members of society. They want to support themselves, but they're not allowed to, to work, unlike in some other countries where folks are able to seek asylum. And so um, that brings into the, the need for uh, entities like us, the LGBTSM task force that provides basic support services in terms of housing, food, connection to pro bono attorneys, medical, mental health resources, um, all of which we've, we've shown to, to actually be helpful in um, getting folks to, to that point where they can uh, legally work to support themselves and also be uh, constructive um, members of society. Quotes. Right, right. And yeah, two years is, is so insane to think that folks are not able to legally find employment or anything to even help to support themselves, especially fleeing persecution and harm from, you know, their home countries or, you know, places that they've been, that they've been living. So do often asylum seekers like have to try and like raise and save money to even get here in the first place and try and like hold themselves like supported by what they're able to save before they even get here. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it is such a complex issue. I mean, even just to, to get here um, has a number of barriers that most aren't able to overcome, right? You're talking about folks on the having as much earning power in their home countries, right. To be able to afford the hundreds of dollars, um, visa application fee. And if they do happen to, to get uh, the fee so that they can have their visa interview, right, they won't necessarily meet the requirements that, that might be to 
have enough su sufficient ties to their home country, so in terms of savings or um, uh, owning property or being um, employed in certain sectors. Um, or, and then let's say that they do meet those requirements and are able to get their US visa then to afford the thousands of dollars to, to get to the US. Um, and then when you get to the US now to, to start that whole process, um, if you're going to be paying for an attorney, right, it can cost up to $10,000 um, to, to have an attorney help you navigate the complex asylum process. And so it is a, a process that has um, unimaginable barriers for folks. And so the fact that anyone gets here is something to be applied because, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a difficult process. And so let's talk about some of those barriers that that folks face, especially LGBTQ folks coming into the city or coming into the U.S. looking um, to seek asylum. We've talked about, you know, in the past, you and I a bit about like housing and transportation and where are some of those barriers that we can dive in on to bring additional light to some of the, the challenges that folks face? So, I mean, so thankfully, the task force is trying to provide like the basic support services up until the point at which an individual um, leaves or, or support or is able to, to legally work support themselves, right? We provide some a few buffer months um, to allow folks to be able to save enough to, to get their first last security deposit. Um, most are able to come close to that with some help from us that we provide some additional assistance. But that's also a barrier, right? I mean, folks would have got their work permits and social security numbers probably two three months prior to, to needing to find a job. And then after finding that job, um, saving up the thousands of dollars that it would take to, to be able to afford first last security and to get your own apartment. If let's say that they do end up having that money saved up or, or able to, to to crowdsource that, then they have to also have sufficient housing um, history, right? Because a lot of landlords are asking for references from your prior landlords. Uh, we try to to write references for folks if landlords will accept those. Um, some don't, and so they have to kind of shop around uh, for landlords that would be willing to accept um, a letter from an agency as opposed to from other landlords. Then landlords also oftentimes will run background checks and credit history, uh, credit reports. Uh, folks who are just getting their social security numbers, right, newcomers, won't have enough data for there to be a background uh, test, and they won't have enough data for there to be um, a credit score or credit report, right? And so that's also another barrier for, for incoming folks just to try to get housing. Then we're talking about transportation, right? I mean, folks won't necessarily have the income first day after scraping together the funds to find housing to also be able to pay for a car to get to a potential job, right? The, as we all know, the transit system in, in Worcester sucks, right? Uh, quite frankly, I mean, it's, I mean, thankfully right now it's, it's free, it's temporarily free, but at least there's zero fare right now. But systematically through the past several years, right, we've seen a reduction in the scope of um, the, the uh, 
the routes that are offered, right? The times that they're offered, right? And then even within those routes and times that are offered, they're not always on time, right? And so that also affects the, the way in which people who are from low income households are able to, to actually get to work. And so there are, there are a whole host of barriers that the average person might not necessarily think about as they're going about their day-to-day -day lives. But when you're talking about people who are oftentimes triply um, marginalized, right? LGBTQ folks, people um, of color, um, immigrants, uh, people of different um, minority faith groups. I mean, it, it, there are a lot of barriers to that that they face in, in just trying to just to start their lives and to, to get ahead. Um, I mean, folks aren't necessarily able either to rely on uh, the help and support of people from their their home countries. Right? So, I mean, a lot of times, I mean, I've, I've heard stories about um, people from Ireland or from Scotland or, or from wherever, right? They immigrate to the to the U.S. and then they're able to to get a job with someone from their home country or get to stay with someone from their home country for a little while while they're able to get on their feet. Right? Oftentimes, LGBTQ people don't have that luxury because uh, they're their country folk, the king folk who are here in the US still are homophobic, right? And still will put people on the streets and still will try to abuse folks or, or harm them. Um, and so they don't have that traditional support that a lot of uh, their heterosexual uh, counterparts might have. Yeah, and I was having a conversation with someone the other day who was in a, an older generation than than myself and was saying, oh, you guys have it so easy now. Everything is you know, gotten so much better for LGBTQ folks. And in certain areas and certain geographies, it with, amongst certain identities, there is some truth in that. But that as a response is too dismissive of the challenges that queer folks still face every day. Um, and it is better in the U.S. than a lot of places, which is horrible because it's still not very great in, um, in this country either. And especially for folks, as you said, who are triple marginalized or have these additional intersections of their identity, which face adversity every day. Um, and it is, you know, not uncommon for folks to be facing these challenges here in Worcester. And so I hope listeners, as you think about this, the, the work is far from over. And, you know, Al, some of the other things that you're, you're sharing um, are, have some similarities with some uh, other, you know, folks facing housing insecurity who uh, may have lost their jobs and now became homeless or are struggling with addiction and are out and homeless on the street. And then they're ready as, as they're looking to seek services and support the all of these systemic barriers that they face. I, I do work with an organization, Living in Freedom Together, which is working with um, women who are sexually exploited and oftentimes are struggling with substance use as well as mental health disorders um, and are frequently unhoused. And we're looking at the challenge of, oh, how do you get into a shelter if you need identification but you don't have a license because you're homeless and it was either taken or lost or stolen and then you can't get into a place to sleep and then you have to go to the social security office but you can't get your social security card if you don't have some form of identification and literally physically walking around or being you know 
having to get on public transit to get into other spaces to move through these different pathways to try and get the supports that should be accessible that people say, Oh, why don't people just do this question mark? Right. And it's like, well, here's why, right? Like think about the time it takes in your day to do X, Y, and Z number of, you know, number of things. Um, so it's, there are similarities and differences, obviously, in the things that folks face. But whether you're someone who is seeking asylum, whether you're someone who was born here and facing, you know, homelessness and some of these hurdles and, and challenges, our systems have not been constructed in ways to be truly supportive to people as and when they when they need those supports. That is so true, right? I mean, it, and I see it every day in terms of just the way in which. Um, Folks are, are struggling to, to navigate uh, services within the city of Worcester. Um, maybe we talk to, I mean, housing is a huge topic, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a business that I'm in, um, and it is uh, something that I've just been paying keen attention to um, over the, the years being in Worcester. Um, and I've had friends who've, who've had to, to leave the city of Worcester because they can no longer afford to live here, right? We're talking about people who used to, to and for, for generations, right, living in the Main Street um, downtown area of Worcester. And uh, over the past 12, 13 years, almost adopting, almost a doubling in their, their rent costs there, right? And, but there isn't a corresponding increase in terms of wages or um, job availability. And so, what ends up happening is, is people who historically have lived in an area can no longer afford to live there and are being moved out for the sake of bringing in other people. And to me, that's just not right. Right. And it's, an, it's an, a serious issue within our city. Absolutely. And, and that's one of the things that we talk about a lot on the show is thinking about, okay, what does growth look like? When we say development, what do we actually mean? Right. Because there's a lot of these terms that are used by folks with, power, privilege, and wealth who use those terms as a way to say, we're doing this thing and it's getting rid of these people and bringing in these other people. And it's not saying growth and development are when everyone who exists and lives in our city has access to resources, access to opportunity, equal access to, and rights to housing, healthcare, um, food security. And we see Development is much easier when you're focused on folks who are able to just, you know, pay for all of that, that development, right? It's not, it's not truly homegrown economic. I like to talk about economic gardening as opposed to economic development, because it's like, how do we really address the challenges that we're facing instead of displacing the challenges? Because certain forms of development and things that we're seeing here in Worcester play out relative to gentrification are, you know, it's, we're displacing issues. We're not connecting people to additional resources or additional wages or additional, you know, access. We're putting those people in situations where they have to leave their homes. They have to move to other places that are quote unquote more affordable, but the same process repeats itself. You know, and when we think about the future, I always like to think like, oh, well, what, what's a hundred years from now going to look like? And if we keep doing the same formula for development, the whole 
you know, we're going to have to face this challenge eventually, right? And so, like, why, why don't we start really looking at addressing it now here in, in Worcester? Yeah, I mean, you can only uh, sweep so much under the rug or put up pretty curtains to, to hide certain um, things that you, you don't want to, to think about at the time. But eventually, it, it will come to the fore. And what I love about this past year Right, as, as bad as it has been for um, a lot of entities and for society as a whole, right? It's been a very traumatic time. Um, it has brought about a, a set of urgency, a, a collective call um, for more, right? For, for city officials, for those who, who do hold certain seats of power to, to actually step up a hand hopefully um with elections coming up if folks who haven't stepped up <laughs> will will be forced to to step down right i mean you can't have entities that are only catering to a certain demographic within the city and not to the majority of, uh, of residents and that's just something that in my mind is untenable and thankfully um folks are doing the, the groundwork to to see an upswell and, and hopefully folks will turn up to, to, the, to, the, to the ballot and, and vote. Yeah, and I think we're also, folks are realizing that there are resources in the face of challenges like a pandemic that can distribute stimuluses to folks that are in need, right? And it's not this impossible task. Like if it was necessary for a large enough amount of people it was possible. And that's the other thing that the pandemic has exposed, which I think in the long run is a good thing. And it's also a frustrating thing because it's exposed in like, it's exposed things that have already been longstanding in our communities, right? Like I do a lot of work in education and the amount of inequity in our education system based on access to resources for young for young folks who, you know, students who are, are going to school who don't have access to the internet at home, or they don't have a laptop or an iPad or devices or Chromebooks that were in, that they were able to do their schoolwork. So their ability to engage in learning and the curriculum is much more difficult than that of their more privileged peers. And now where, because of the pandemic, every student, and I'll put an asterisk there because I, I don't know that it's truly every single student because you know there's a lot of complexity and a lot of obscure kind of cloudiness in the data that we get sometimes in the community. But um, the majority of students in the Worcester Public Schools now have a Chromebook that they get to take home. And we've been finding that not only are students using this for school, they're using it for job applications. They're using it for access to healthcare information. They're using it in ways that every, you know people who have access to the internet and these resources use the internet for, right? And it is, and that's another huge access conversation relative to um, folks seeking asylum, folks looking at um, accessing support services. Is even finding where to start or where to look is much easier having a computer and sitting on the internet as opposed to having to walk around the city and ask strangers some oftentimes for access to those those resources no, certainly and that's just been compounded even more throughout the pandemic i mean thankfully the worcester public library 
um, is reopening if they haven't already re reopened. Uh, but just, yeah, just in that, that specific issue, right? Just trying to find services, trying to gain employment um, has been even more difficult uh, for the pandemic because there, there hasn't been access to, to public spaces like uh, the library and, and just having those resources. So with some of the challenges and things that we've talked about, we always love to explore what are some possible solutions or what are some of the things that people who are listening can keep an eye out for or become engaged in to really support the, the work that folks are doing, you know, like yourself um, and like the Asylum Task Force. What are some of the things that you've seen based on your experiences and your work that should be more of a priority in our community and what are some things that folks listening might become more involved with or at least keep an ear um, to, to listen on how they can be supportive to this this type of work? So, I mean, it's, there's something, it's something as simple as um, just talking to folks to see what their individual needs might be, All right? So the task force, we've, we've adopted this model where we will provide certain core services in terms of housing and um, a small monthly stipend to take care of transportation and, and food costs and such. But there are a vast array of more, need, of more needs that, that folks might have. And we invite folks every second Monday of the month um, to come and meet with asylum seekers, sit with them, have a meal, um, and talk to folks and see what their individual needs might be. Um, and come with an open mind, right? Because, I mean, some folks have varied backgrounds, right? I mean, folks have certain um, degrees at which they're, they're, they've completed their education, they've had certain job experiences or, or not, um, some want to be retrained. Um, and so certainly having individual discussions with folks um, to see how best it is that they can, can be helped um, is certainly key as opposed to just surmising what a certain demographic or certain individual might need and try to, to push that on onto them. Um, certainly communicating with folks um, we've found to be to be the most helpful. Um, definitely once it is that you you're aware of what these issues might be like we've mentioned before um, in terms of access to, to transit um, or access to, to housing, right? Stepping up and advocating and enjoying certain movements that are um, in alignment with with those, right? And so right now we have uh, a group that's zero fear um, that is trying to to make these um, cuts in or the, the zero fear uh, policy become permanent. Um, right now it's just up until the end of this year, but there certainly is a a benefit in having that be something that is more permanent. So certainly talking to, to members of the board of, our, of the RTA and then also talking to their city councilors, um, writing letters to the city manager, um, applying as much pressure as possible on, on folks to, to get them to to basically know that that this is a priority for you, something that you see is a priority, is a need within the city. Um, and that they really have no option but to do. Um, then there is also in terms of housing, right? And so if it is that they are landlords or they have relationships with landlords or, or um, 
are aware of them. I'm certainly advocating for changes in in their requirements for for people being housed within their their units, right? And so, is it really a requirement? Do you really need to to have um, certain things, whether it be three three uh, references, or do you need um, all of these? Because we know that people can have three. Uh, stellar references but still be horrible tenants right um so yeah, there isn't necessarily a correlation between those and so certainly all those barriers right having talks with with folks that that you do have personal relationships with or if you're aware of um certainly is helpful because those those tend to be the, the ones that people will be most receptive to right as opposed to a stranger saying something to them if you build a relationship or you have a relationship with someone um, they're, they're more, they will more likely listen to you. Are there any, like, I jump into kind of brainstorm mode oftentimes when I'm, when I'm having these conversations and are there any like tenant assistance programs in the city? Like I know that there's, you know, affordable housing, but affordable housing's also challenging because it's like, you can't make so little money, but you can't make too much money. And there's like a, challenging threshold within within that space but even like any city programs or, or grant opportunities that support folks paying first security and last because that that's a heavy haul to have to you know assemble for an amount of money just to find some housing security um, or you know st stability there and and you make a great point with like you can have a handful of great I'm using air quotes for listeners, a bunch of great references, but still be a horrible tenant. And so what are like more equitable as well as just accurate ways for folks to know that there's some level of uh, like protection or security for someone moving into to their, you know, to their home or to their space. So are there like any like tenant assistant programs or, or things like that that exist? Uh, there are, uh, but not everyone would necessarily meet the uh, the requirements to be able to access those resources. But there are entities such as H Project Worcester, and there is the um, CMH, a Central Mass Housing Alliance, or, or yeah, th that that do um, administer grant support to. To people who are unhoused or trying to, to access um, affordable housing. And they've been especially helpful throughout the pandemic in, in getting some folks um, into housing, which is great. Uh, is there need for more funding to do more of that? Certainly. Um, but yes, there, there are a couple of entities um, that I'm aware of that are doing that important work. Well, and that's the other thing that I get, you know, and listeners of the show know I get frustrated about is, is looking at having conversations with people who kind of complain about some of these like socialized systems and like having accessible free transit and rights to housing and healthcare, things like that. It's like, we know that the cost burden of an individual in society is lessened when they have access to housing, food and healthcare, right? Like the cost if people are simply looking at the inhumane, simple numbers, right, of, of these challenges that we face in society, it costs a lot less to the taxpayer when 
people have these rights to um, basic human services. And that's what so many people push against. But you don't hear people complaining about socialized system like fire department, because what if my house burns down, right? Then you have that resource available and accessible. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and another entity is, I mean, you mentioned healthcare, right? So if you look at uh, why it is that health insurance companies will pay for you to, to go to the dentist twice a year or to see the doctor twice a year, right? For preventative care, because they know at the end of the day, right? that ends up costing them far less than if they were to have to be treating some later condition and doing surgery and um, going through chemo and doing all that stuff. And so they're, they're willing to invest upfront um, in, in, in people and then be able to access certain services because they care about their bottom line, right? And their profits and, and it just makes sense to do that. Right, right. And, and yeah, that's, that's the hard conversation to have with some folks who are on kind of the more conservative side of the, the issue. It's like, oh, like, I don't want to be paying for X, Y, and Z. But it's like, you're paying for that in different ways. So like, actually, let's look at the numbers and figure out how we can help people save lives and the cost burden to you as an individual will probably not look that much different. Yeah. So one of the things that, that I also wanted to, to chat with you about, because I know that the LGBT Asylum Task Force is under uh, a church and a, a, a faith group, um, and I, you know, from my own like personal background and lived experience, have had very negative experiences with with churches, and so I'm wondering how, um, you know, you and the the church community that you're a part of really approach this work, recognizing the harms that religious institutions have and continue in certain respects to, to cause for LGBTQ folks, um, and especially LGBTQ folks of other like marginalized faiths, faith identities and things like that. So how do you balance that? Or maybe there isn't a balance. It's just like you do this, but I'm interested in, in that piece. Cause it's, I, I think, you know, a relevant point to talk about the, the work that, churches and nonprofits and things like have to do to really help support folks to exist, which is an unfortunate reality that we have. But, um, how do, how do you kind of approach that considering that you're, you're part of a faith community that's, that's doing this work? Yeah. So, I mean, so you're, you're right in that, uh, churches traditionally have done a lot of harm to the LGBTQ community, right? Um, whether it be Christianity, um, whether it be Islam, um, Buddhism, uh, it's, there's been a lot of hurt that has been done. But uh, there are churches out there, there are um, synagogues out there, there are um, a lot of faith-based institutions out there who view their embarrassed faith texts in a different light, who view it as their, their requirement that it is their, their duty to first see human beings, right? To celebrate all of that was created, um, to see everyone as flawed, but still flawless so to speak, right? 
and not just accept everyone, but to celebrate everyone. Because I mean, you can you can say you accept someone and you turn a blind eye to stuff. No, we're saying that there's anything wrong <laughs> um, with LGBTQ individuals, and there's a safe space with us, and we celebrate to be full um, members of, of our congregation. And and that's the the oath that our church, Hadam Park Provincial Church, um, is a member of the UCC denomination. Um, has taken right that, and it's, a, it's something that we we reaffirm every single Sunday, the beginning of all of our services, that um, we accept everyone regardless of where they're from, um, what their sexual identity or orientation is, um, regardless of their race, uh, religion, um, age. Uh, we accept that everyone is a fully um, functioning, um, welcomed member of the fabric of society. And so that's that's the basic principle by which we operate. And so we saw, right, with the first establishment CP that came to us in 2008, that there was a need, right? It was a need for just one individual, right? He was unhoused um, and he didn't have access to, to, to food and certain resources. And he also had a lot of self-hatred um, because of what religion had done to him in the past. And so we saw a, an opportunity to provide assistance in all of those areas. And just by doing that for one person, right, he felt welcomed. He, um, for the most part, didn't have thoughts that he had before about self-harm and in return went ahead and spread the word that here is this welcoming place where I can practice my faith, um, I can be fully open and not have to live in fear. And so <laughs> through word of mouth, <laughs> oh, basically uh, we're talking about the tune of about 400 people from over 20 different countries have walked through our doors and have been directly assisted by us. And that's not taking into account the hundreds of others who haven't been able to to get to the US to get to our housing or were able to access our housing based on where they were, but were helped in other ways to, to find resources that they needed uh, locally. And so it's 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 a ministry that at the the base of it all is rooted in in love and compassion. And um and we we think it's it's weird that other people see it differently. Mm. Other people see human beings and their needs differently. That other people of faith, right, um, can see the stranger and not welcome them into their homes and not offer them bread. That is, that goes against the, the root of, of, of what it is that, that Christ came here for, right? To, to offer love and compassion and support for our neighbors. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And I, I remember, and again, reflecting on my own experiences, just so much um, how that can be done so wrong because of people's like perception of like, oh, I'm doing this to simply like spread the word of my faith and my, my charter or path in life as, you know, a Christian or however, whatever religious affiliation is to convert people to thinking similarly to, to me. And so there's, there's this 
power differential and dynamic when someone with resources comes to someone else without resources and says, I have resources if you join this, this thing. And so it sounds like you approach this a bit differently. Um, Certainly. I mean, we have, over the years, we've had people who are atheists, people who are Muslim. Um, it doesn't matter what their faith tradition is. There's no requirement to come to church services or anything like that, right? Folks can practice whatever it is that they, their faith traditions might be. Um, we're just here to provide for the basic needs for human beings. Great. Well, and thank you for, for doing this work. Um, it's, it's really important and it's saving lives and uh, helping to propel folks forward. And another thing that we talk about the show a lot is building wealth and like generating wealth, um, you know, as folks who are marginalized. And um, again, there's layers of and compounding of intersectional elements of other marginalized identities that we've, that we've addressed and um, historically have not been given as much access to opportunity to build, grow, develop, maintain wealth. And whether that's, you know, again, access to food, housing, owning land, whatever it might be. Um, so one of the, the things that you're involved in, which is part of kind of both celebrating this while also looking to support like the queer dollars um, is queer the scene. So shifting a little bit um, to, to that for a minute, talk to me a little bit about queer the scene and, and your vision for, for that work. Sure. So let me start off by just talking about our, our history and how it is that we came to be. All right. So it's just five of us friends um, who have lived in the city of Worcester uh, collectively for probably 50 plus years. Um, and we kind of got frustrated not seeing enough open spaces for queer people within the city, right? Places where folks can go and relax that um, are catering um, specifically to them. Um, we also found that the little or the few spaces that do exist um, weren't necessarily the most inviting to queer people of color, right? And so we got frustrated and tired of complaining about it and decided to just do something. And so we formed in 2019 um, a an entity that at the root of it is focused on creating um, safe spaces where folks can express themselves, um, whether it be through arts and music um, or um, just in terms of discussion, right? Just having a safe space where folks can, can um, be themselves. And so we've been operating since 2019. Uh, last year we had to, because of the pandemic, put a pause on a lot of the, the plans that we had um, but we're certainly um, working towards um, kickstarting a lot of them uh, this summer. And so folks should definitely stay tuned for those. Great. Yeah, I'm, I'm always happy to see and celebrate more queer things going on in, in Worcester. Um, and, you know, that you, you, brought, you brought up like the, the notion that there are histories of harm even within our own queer community, which I think this is another really important thing um, to, to bring voice to and address, especially talking about Pride Month and looking at the unfortunate 
but in some ways necessary fall and change over of Worcester Pride as an organization in our community, really looking at um, the some of the folks who have done organizing or you know been involved in various parts of the queer community, not also advocating for celebrating, including, and recognizing that the fight is not over for queer folks generally, but also especially our, our queer siblings in other marginalized communities. You know, looking at everything that has been happening, I mean, for obvious decades, century plus, et cetera, for, um, you know, people of color in this country. And we have like those, all of those people are also part of the LGBTQ plus identity and the letters and all of that. And to ignore and to diminish and to um, not place a first priority on that piece has caused a lot of fracturing, I think, within, within Worcester and within, you know, the queer community here. And, I wonder, and not to, this is in no way being apologist because there are places that we know in the city that have not been welcoming or accepting to um, queer folks of color, to trans folks. There's been issues you know, within our community that 100% need to be acknowledged and um, called out. And then I also wonder what, the, what are paths forward for healing and again, kind of like unifying as, as community, like what are the things that, and I think this is for, for the broader conversation as well for listeners who are thinking about their workplaces and their organizations that have caused repeated harms by not acknowledging and doing the work to um, be Im implement anti-racist policies, anti-homophobic and transphobic policies in their, in their workplaces. What are some of the things that, we can do as folks in spaces, whether it's our workplace, whether it's in a queer, queer spaces in our community, to address the harms caused and like work towards healing and, and really building unity and community again. I mean, it has to be a multi-pronged approach, right? Um, it's going to require folks listening, right? To listen to people who are marginalized within the communities. Um, listen to their stories, right? And I'm not talking about just, just hearing them, listening, taking them in, um, asking questions. Um, it also involves folks doing their research, right? So take whatever stories you might hear, do your, your own research to find, okay, well, um, how it is that other people have addressed these issues, delve deeper into the particular issues and see, okay, what's at the, the root cause of them and how it is that we might necessarily address them. Um, and then go further than just making statements, right? And so we've seen after the unfortunate incident with uh, incidences with Breonna Taylor and um, Tony McDade and George Floyd and, and all the folks this past year, right? After each occurrence, right? We saw our inboxes be flooded with emails from various entities uh, reaffirming their support for for uh, people of color and for LGBTQ individuals, um, which is great, right? Statements do have a place in it, but then there's also the implementation of that particular policy behind the scenes. 
right? And so folks certainly need to be hawks to, to, to pay keen attention to how it is that, that individuals are being treated within their particular organizations and then step up, right? Step up and say something or um, approach who it is that, that is responsible for implementing change, um, volunteering to be a part of that, that said change. Um, because it's, it's, it's the only way in which you're going to actually create a safe space, right? And so putting out statements and changing your Facebook status and, and all that and tweeting stuff, right? Again, they are very helpful, right? But you need to do more, right? So reach out to various entities that are doing the work within your, your community. Um, reach out to, to, to folks and, and ask how it is that I can get involved, how it is that I can, can help to, to bring about this change that we're all advocating for. And I think a lot of folks also overlook the power of like supporting this work through dollars if that's the capacity that folks have um, in, in certain instances as well of you know how many times you see like a fundraiser or something going on and not even throwing like five or ten or fifty dollars whatever is within your capacity and how much that can really be impactful you know Worcester is a hundred and eighty six thousand people right in in the city if even ten thousand gave five dollars every time an organization asked for support that's fifty thousand dollars is a pretty sizable amount of money to support a lot of the work that's going on in in community um, and I'm totally here and advocate for folks to volunteer and get involved and donate their time and and that energy um, to doing this work as well as you know contributing financially when when it's um, possible for for you or you know, um, people in your, in your community and also just encouraging, you know, encouraging that. Yeah. I mean, it's, there are two currencies that are important, right? Human power, but also cold hard cash, right? I mean, that's what's needed to be able to, to purchase food or to purchase stuff or to, to, um, supplies or to, to pay for rents or, or assistance for, for those or for transportation cards or, I mean, it, Money makes the world go around, and certainly when folks do have the potential to be able to assist, um, like you said, whether it be a thousand bucks or just five dollars, right? It all adds up, and folks need to and should be encouraged to to um, play whatever their part and, and donate whatever it is that they're they're able to do. I mean, for the task force, we have to fundraise forty thousand dollars each month in order to, to keep this ministry going. At any given time, we're supporting up to 28 individuals, right? So these are people who literally can't work, right? Or at least aren't supposed to work unless they're going to put their cases in jeopardy if they do, right? And so you have these folks who need to survive somehow, right? And the only way they can do it is through the kindness of strangers um, or through through the task force. And, and so people should... We definitely be encouraged to, to donate to that. And folks can go on our website, lgbtsm.org, uh, to make a donation and to also learn more about what it is that we're doing and how it is that they can get involved. Great. And you have an exciting project coming up that's that's opening soon, if you want to share a little bit about that with our, our listeners. Sure. So for the past three years or so, 
um, we've been on this effort to purchase a triple-decker in Worcester to house folks. Right? As it is right now, we're paying rent in a bunch of different locations um, throughout the city. And as folks might imagine, that is very costly. And, and so we embarked on this process. We had um, two fundraiser galas. We've written to foundations. We've done fund, um, funding drives uh, to get individual donors to donate from $5 to several thousands to be able to do it. We went ahead and made offers on, I can't tell you how many different properties within the city, but because of how hot the market is right now with Boston developers coming in and bidding cash and driving up the cost of, of, of houses in Worcester, um, we kept being outbid, but finally last fall, we were able to, to secure a home and uh, it's currently being renovated and we're hopeful that we'll be able to move in uh, there within the next month and a half, two months, so by early summer and, and house uh, about half the folks who are currently receiving more housing. And so that's definitely um, a huge, huge uh, addition to, to the resources that we have, right? So we're not spending as much on a monthly basis to pay for rent um, and are able to in turn house the more people than, than we, we have so far. Great. Well, congratulations. And that's, that's really exciting and uh, look forward to continuing to follow the, the task force work and uh, encourage folks to, to check that, check that out and, and be supportive as, as you can. In in our last minute or two here, um, one of the questions that I, I like to ask as we're a show about building inclusive, equitable and prosperous futures, what do you feel is the most the next most elegant step to move Worcester forward in a transformative way? Go back to the basics, right? The basics of what the community needs, right? And so we've talked about it um, a lot throughout the course of, of, of this, this podcast. Well, we talk about the basic human needs, right? Access to housing, access to food, and be able to access uh, public transit. I mean, those three have been issues that have been plaguing the city for as long as I've been in the city of Worcester, so the past 13 years or so. Um, and it is something that we need to go back to, right, in order for us to move forward and to develop into this vibrant city that we all want it to be. Great. Well, thank you so much, Al. Always great to chat and uh, look forward to seeing you out in the community now that we are able to uh, leave our homes. And yeah, and if I may put in a plug, folks, go out and get vaccinated. It's, yes. It's what we all need to, to be able to be free, so to speak. Thanks for listening to the Public Hearing Podcast, our show that airs Wednesdays at 6 p.m. on WICN 90.5 FM, Worcester's only NPR affiliate station. Thank you to Al Green for joining us today. My name is Joshua Croak, and this has been the Public Hearing Podcast. Public Hearing is created and produced by Action by Design. We're a design studio that facilitates community engagement and social change innovation and provides equity-centered design, branding, and storytelling services. 
Learn more at actionbydesign.co. Our audio producer is Giuliano Durazio. Thank you to Eric Gratton, Molly Gammon, and Sean Chung, who also support the production of Public Hearing. We'd love to hear from you about what you might want to hear on the show or what resonated with you from a past episode. Get in touch with us on our website at publichearing.co. And as always, thanks for listening.